is uh, Duramater, Falsaribri, Corpus Callistum. Anyways, um, thought I'd fill it in a little bit for you guys. Anyways, um, so if there was ever a lesson that I was planning on skipping, it was this one. Um, I was not planning on going into John 4 after John 3. Considering it's not expositional, I didn't necessarily think it had as much relevance to the series. <clears throat> um, but I decided against it because I thought that John 4 really captured a different side of Jesus than um, John 3 did. And so in our effort to get the gospel right, if that's what our series is indeed entitled, I, I thought it was appropriate to capture um, his interaction with the woman at the well, um, which is significantly different than what happened with Nicodemus. So our attempt is going to be to get through from all the way from verse 1 of chapter 4 all the way through verse 26, which will be record time if we do that. So it's going to be, um, it's going to be gusty, gusto, and we're going to get through it. Um, our whole intent really, to me, I think the most relevant thing in this entire passage and most applicable to us today is coming in verses 23 and 24 which is um, why we're going to hasten through the early bit and really park there for a moment. So um, let's, I wanted to pose a few questions right off the top of the bat. Uh, that was stupid. That was stupid. I, right off the, t what is the phrase? What is it? It's either right off the bat or right off the top. Okay, I, I did both, didn't I? <laughs> let's put, I'm going to pose three questions so that we can be on the same page when discussing it so that we can go through this quicker. Um, who are the Samaritans and why do the Jews hate them so much? The Samaritans were Jews that intermarried and basically seen as dogs by the Jews. Okay. Because they were not pure Jews. Yeah. I did not include much on this. Um, I thought it was beyond the scope of this study. Um, there's plenty of history in the Old Testament to study out if you are interested. There's plenty to go through. Um, but I... I, I wanted to keep this more to this. Any other thoughts on why Samar who the Samaritans are, why the Jews hate them so much, and what the interplay is there? Can you repeat that? Who are the Samaritans? Why do the Jews hate them so deeply? Yeah. Uh, so the Samaritans first came about because of the Assyrian conquest. Um, they took over Israel and gave took all the land away from the Israelites there, um, gave lands to um, pagans and stuff like that, and the Jews that were left were basically um, married into those families and began to worship false gods. So. Yeah. Why is it noteworthy that Jesus would even enter into a discussion with a Samaritan woman? Why is that such a big deal? Also, the fact that she was not the most pure, not pure, abstinent. That's the word I'm looking for. Person. Well, just the fact that she was a woman was like kind of a big deal. Like, men and women just didn't really interact a whole lot with each other. Mm -hmm. It was very, I mean, it came to the point where a lot of times, like, men would not even talk to their wives in public, yes. which was, I mean, it's hard to imagine that now. but. Um, but yeah, so the fact that he would go and talk to some other woman that he wasn't related to, I mean, that's like wrong, you know, yeah. they didn't do that. 
There are a lot of different social customs that Jesus had to break through in order to address this woman at the well. Finally, the third question that I want to at least answer by the end of the night is what is worship? Very broad question, but what is worship? And that's kind of where we're going here. Um, And Jesus used this in his gospel presentation to the woman at the well. However, still a very applicable question to us today. I I divided this up into, uh, I think, five different categories. Um, The circumstances, the contact, the conviction, and the Christ. I believe that was four, actually. Yes. So you all are probably familiar with um, the he must increase, but I must decrease. That's a very, I mean, that's, we love that verse. And that was found in the latter portion of John chapter three. And we turn over to John chapter four and we run into the circumstances. Uh, John chapter four, verses one and two. Now we know that the Pharisees and um, Sadducees didn't really appreciate John the Baptist too much. Um, he preached repentance, you know, the whole brood of vipers interaction didn't go so hot. And so um, this is a context where we find um, Jesus in John chapter 4. Can't blame me if you guys don't have your references. That's, that doesn't go into my time. I think it's me, okay. <laughs> now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So Jesus is starting to get more popular than John. And the Pharisees didn't all, like, they hated John the Baptist. So somebody that's more popular than John the Baptist is going to be even worse. And Jesus wasn't at this point ready in his ministry for a confrontation with the Pharisees. That was not what was in the divine timetable. And so it was time to head out. And this is where we see something very interesting happen. This kind of sets the stage for the whole story. It really... As John, the, as John is trying to put on display Christ's deity, when he says he necessarily needed to go through Samaria, that really sets the stage for the rest of the passage. Uh, verses 3 and 4. He left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. For those of you who are interested in uh, historical geography, why is it interesting that Jesus said, I need to go through Samaria? is not the normal path. As a matter of fact, um, the Jews, there's a couple different routes you could take. If Judea is down here and Galilee's up here and Samaria's kind of in the middle, the Jews often kind of did one of these to not have to deal with the Samarians. They would literally go out to the coast or across the Jordan because they didn't want to. And so the most direct path was up through Samaria. But they hated that because that meant they had to interact with Samaritans. And they really didn't appreciate that. Verse 5. So he came to a town of to, to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. This is a really rich, uh, plenty of history in this one place, and there's plenty of Old Testament backing for this. Um, if you want to look, there's uh, plenty of stuff in Genesis. Um, it goes all the way back there. It's um, I think I saw some stats that it was probably about a hundred foot deep. So it's a pretty significant well that we're talking about here. The walk that Jesus has now taken at this point in the day has been about 20 miles from where he started up to Sychar is about 20 miles. And so it says that um, he got there at noon. 
So uh, verse 6, if you would. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour would have been about noon for them in their the way they kept time. And so if you think about it, I did a little bit of calculating here. Um, if you are... If you are getting there at about six, um, the six hour, which would be noon, and you've taken, I don't know, probably six hours to start, so you've started at 6 a.m. and gone till noon, you've been walking 3.33 miles per hour for the past six hours straight without a break up and down the terrible terrain in Israel. And if you've ever had the opportunity to go to Israel, you know it's going to be a lot of this. So it was not an easy walk. So that's why Jesus was tired when he got there. He'd walk 20 miles at minimum in under six hours, probably. So he's... He's, he's a pretty fit dude. Yeah, I mean, whoever has that comedy where it's like, our Savior is a stud. <laughs> he's very right. I mean, cardiovascularly fit, probably muscularly fit. It's, it's a good deal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> Jack and Tam. Um, Verse 7, verse 7. So we're going to get into the contact here. This is a first point of contact between the Samaritan woman and Jesus. Real quick, it's also just interesting that the woman was at the well this time. Yes. Yes. And I mean, obviously, this is going to prove Jesus' divinity. And that's the whole point John is trying to make here. It's like Jesus needed to be there at that time and for a specific purpose. Verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Why is it significant that Jesus spoke those words? I mean, it seems pretty innocuous, innocent in of itself. But why why is Jesus' just little sentence there, so powerful. Well, I'd say, first of all, the fact that he even talked to her, it's pretty unheard of uh, for yeah. Samaritans. Yeah. So it's literally him asking her for a favor. Yeah. They associate, them with, associate with that in any way. Would have been, would have been seen as, seen as a poor man. It would have been rather abhorrent, yeah. if nothing else. Absolutely. If nothing else. Yeah. yeah. What, what, think, about, think about it from this perspective. This will show the contrast even in a more dramatic sense. If you had to list off some one or two word things, how did Nicodemus and this woman differ? Because these are back-to-back stories that John is showing, and he's doing it for a very specific purpose. There's a definitive contrast between Nicodemus and the woman. What are some of the differences that you would see? Jesus sort of went to her. Okay. The time of day. Time of day, yeah. (laughs) Nicodemus was a man of power, and the woman was considered lower than the Jews. Absolutely. Other thoughts? Differences? Yeah. Nicodemus knew a lot about the traditions and the um, uh, he was trained he was taught about the bible 
and she kind of probably wasn't. <laughs> It's interesting that you bring that up, and I didn't put this in anywhere. Samaritans, uh, most historians would agree that they only recognize the Pentateuch, so the first five books in the Bible, whereas the Jews were obviously accepted the whole Old Testament canon that you would think of. So they really had limited knowledge, and especially the best of the best would have had limited knowledge because they only looked at the first five books, let alone a woman on the bottom of the socioeconomic food chain. Other differences between the two. Jesus was asking something from her. Nicodemus was asking something from him. Yes. You see a very distinct difference in Jesus' style, but you see the same message come across. It's the same thing, but he comes about it very differently. You have somebody who... Jesus, Jesus is ministering to everyone. Jews don't go through this area. They hated that whole race of people. They didn't like the gender. Rabbis weren't supposed to associate with sinners. She was immoral. Men didn't speak to their wives in public, etc. Like it, literally every possible social strike was against this situation, and yet Jesus did it anyways. Did you have something, Joe? Though this is not exactly the point of the story, I find Jesus' um, treatment of this woman and women in general very, um, very inspiring. He, in a context of a situation where people didn't, he did anyways, um, which is very encouraging. And I mean, he, he cared about sin a lot he cared about holiness, but not in the sense that it made him hate people. And that line of him just straight up challenging people's sin, yet also not like hating on them because of their sin is such a fine line to walk. And it's one that we have a lot to learn from. Run, a, run toward, not away. Verse 8. Um, his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. What do you think would have happened if the disciples had just hung around? They would have tried to chase her away like they did the little children. <laughs> well, actually, and I think that's interesting you say that. Like, later in the chapter, when, they, when he gets back, they're like, I'm sorry, why were you talking to her? <laughs> so I don't think the situation would have gone so hot if the disciples had chosen to hang around, and I think Jesus knew that. Um, and despite what... Um, never mind. Um, I guess it's a one-on-one -on -one date, but anyways... Uh, Jesus needed to have this time alone with her, and the disciples were not in a position to be able to get over their racism, sexism, etc., etc., etc. Jesus needed to have this moment, and he wasn't going to run away. He was running toward this issue, and I find that also very challenging because, well, for, who do you struggle to talk to? Who do you just like, you see them and you're like, mm -mm, no, not doing it today. What, what population, what kind of person do you struggle to run towards and love? I'll start out and give you a second. I struggle with people that can't make conversation very well. 
And not because I don't like them, but because it makes me feel awkward. I'm like, I don't know what to say. How am I supposed to continue this conversation? You want somebody that can just, you know, you know those people that you can talk with two hours with, with no, but when you don't have that connection, it can become very awkward. And so I don't necessarily want to go and talk to somebody that I know the conversation is going to be ending in an awkward way with like, hi, I got to go now. Bye. I don't want to run towards those people. I've given, I've bought you at least 30 seconds. Populations <coughs> that you don't deal so well with. I have a hard time um, continuing to deal with people who say the same thing every time I see them. Mm. Okay. You've seen me try to, to just say the word abhorred. <laughs> I, I'm awkward in, in most conversations with most different people. Kind of naturally, I'm uh, socially awkward. And that's okay. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Certainly, you guys are annoyed by other people. Who can you just not deal with? Yeah. People with just really aggressive opinions. Okay. Like not accepting people. Yes. I, I, let me make sure I'm going to this word here. I may even agree with them. It's just like the way that they handle Yes. <laughs> Yeah, think about this. Read verse 9 if you would. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for me a drink from, from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And I thought about the word dealings and just modernized it a bit. Like, who can you not deal with? <coughs> who can you not deal with? I mean, that's the question. Because she's saying Jews can't deal with Samaritans. Yeah. Josh, um, I'm going to bring you back in. I'm doing you a favor here. Um, people who refuse to think for themselves. Now, let me pose this question. I think this is, I, I mean this in a convicting sense. I really mean this seriously. For all these populations that we don't deal well with, we deal less well with them than usual when we're tired. Okay, you know when you're tired and you're like, I literally do not possess the energy to deal with them. Jesus has now walked 20 miles at 3.3 miles per hour, getting up at 6 a.m. and is in the heat of the day in Sychar with a Samaritan. You can pull it together and have the energy to deal with the people that you don't like and you can minister to them too. You're not too tired. I know that, I know that like it, it's a really good excuse to say that we're tired, yeah. And you shouldn't be doing it on your own strength anyways. So, I mean, that's even a better opportunity for the Holy Spirit to give you his power and yeah. to do it on his power. Right. Absolutely. But he didn't let that get in his way. He didn't, he didn't hide behind his tiredness is more the truth of the matter. It's really interesting. I had an opportunity where it's a day where someone who... 
first of all, they were someone who just talks, 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 and doesn't shut up and complains about the most um, little things. Like you, you do anything that makes this person uncomfortable or rubs them the wrong way, and they're gonna complain about it for an hour at least. They asked me to, if they pulled me aside one time, and they were correcting me on what I was doing, and. It was just a time where I like literally had zero energy and it was only God, I know it could only have been God, to give me that humility and that strength to just say, okay, I'm listening. Yeah. What were you going to say? I was going to say, Jesus actually used it. He said, did you give me water? Yeah. He ends up basically capitalizing on his own weakness there. Yeah. So. He totally does. I mean, he's... It's awesome. It's awesome. The Bible is so straightforward in its presentation because in his effort to prove divinity, he also just shows his humanity right alongside it and how those merge together. But Jesus didn't hide from people that that he wasn't supposed to like. He went right to him no matter what. Verses 10 through 15. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who was saying to you, Give me a drink, you would ask him, I'm sorry, and you would ask him, and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again, ever. In fact, the water I will give you will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. There's plenty to be said about that. There's plenty of Old Testament reference to be made about water, and we started to last week a little bit with Nicodemus. But another thing you might want to pick up on, there's not all this heady theological stuff happening that there was with Nicodemus. Jesus is saying the same thing. You need this spiritual life. We talked about water and spirit last, uh, last, actually two weeks ago, how he needed that to be regenerated. But Jesus isn't getting off in the weeds like he did with Nicodemus in a way. He's, he's meeting the person where she's at. How many of you are familiar with the name Jim Jones? Any of you? Okay, we got a couple. I, I really tried to modernize it, and I, th- I thought it made perfect sense. And I said to Joe before we started, and she was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And I was like, yep, that, uh, that, that shot that down. How many of you know the phrase, like, drink the Kool-Aid? Any of you heard the phrase, drink the Kool-Aid? Okay, there we go. Yes, uh, you know, the genocide of a bunch of people up on the top of a mountain with Jim Jones and his cult. That some, some of you are like, yep, and then other... <laughs> that one, I thought it was the one next door. Jesus is telling this woman that she needs to drink the Kool-Aid. And this is the correct Kool-Aid. This is the correct Kool-Aid. This is water. It's not Kool-Aid. This is not cyanide-infused Kool-Aid. Yes. But that, that's basically what he's saying here. You need to imbibe in something deeper. This is, he's contrasting, he's using this te- temporal analogy, it's an earthly analogy of something and saying, you need to drink in the spiritual truth that I'm offering. And so we've adopted this phrase, drink the Kool-Aid, like you've really imbibed and drunk deeply at the school of that, you know, uh, school of thought or philosophy. And that's what Jesus is basically saying here. You really need to take this to heart. And there's plenty more that could be said there. 
but we're not going to do it. But we're not going to do it tonight. Look at us. <laughs> so the, the other part of the Kool-Aid that we might not like so much is the conviction. And this is the awesome part. Jesus is going through, you know, the, the high points of getting to have spiritual life, this, this refreshing flow inside you that leads to everlasting life. But then he shifts it around once she doesn't get it. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. There's a couple different ways you could take this. You see that she says, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst. I don't, I, she doesn't get it. She doesn't get the analogy. And so there's a couple ways you can interpret him saying, go get your husband. Either he just omnisciently is shifting to the more urgent need, or perhaps in a cultural sense, that would have been something like, let's bring your husband into this discussion um, because of the woman's role in understanding. I, I don't know which it is. It could be either. But Jesus is transitioning to the more urgent need, and that is her spiritual condition. She doesn't get the analogy about water and you know, kind of the rebirth and stuff, so he's just he's jumping to the point. And it's interesting because he, he didn't really do that with Nicodemus. The spiritual elitist didn't get the straight to the point, here's what you need. But for somebody that's not trained and down here, Jesus graciously went right to it. Verse 17 and 18. A woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. That is the most savage this thing. This you have said truly. <laughs> you're right. Oh, you're right. You're definitely right. It's like the sixth one. <laughs> He confronts her sin, and that's, that's, that's exactly where he shifts. So she doesn't tell a lie. She just doesn't. You're not a liar. You're just not a truther either. <laughs> <laughs> I love her response. Her response is so awesome. She's like, whoa, okay, all right. It's obvious you're a prophet. We get it. You're a prophet. Uh, verse 19. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. I like ESV. I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> <laughs> no dip, Sherlock. Sure <laughs> <laughs> Let me treat my <laughs> How has Christ blown through your facades? Because she, she wanted to put on this front something that isn't not true she wanted to be like yeah i don't i don't have a husband and jesus she didn't is it wasn't a lie but he blew right through that facade that front how have you seen christ do the same thing in your life yeah no i'm saying yeah no i've said a lot a lot tonight i'm socially awkward yeah tonight i'm trying to get better at that so Personally, yeah, nowadays, yeah, nowadays I mostly just tell jokes because I like telling jokes. Or I used to kind of just tell jokes because, yeah, I felt bad about it. Mm -hmm. oh. Yeah. I'll be honest, I kind of, after come, going to our church for a while, I kind of started seeing, I'm not, yeah, yeah, 
you're you're just trying to hide something. Actually, actually, our pastor brought up this in the actually he brought up this and the story about Adam and Eve and their fig leaves. But mm -hmm. We're just talking about this this lady for, for, for right now. How many of you have hid behind humor? Like that is your facade. Yeah. I. I was the easiest one to hide yeah. behind. That and sarcasm. sarcasm. <laughs> I can look at so many people right now about sarcasm and hold up my mirror to myself. It's not, I, I'm not mad at, you know, like fun sarcasm that's not biting. That's not what I'm getting at here. But when you are so scared to be vulnerable that you have to be sarcastic because you can't deal with being sweet. That's an issue. And I, I mean, for me personally, it's, it's much easier to laugh and be lighthearted than it is to be vulnerable and say, this is where I'm at and I really appreciate you. Because when you put yourself out there and say, man, I absolutely love yada yada, or it's easier, for, I'll make it even more personal, it's easier for me to teach just a bunch of facts than it is for me to teach and include my personal experience with God because it's much easier to defend my if somebody critiques me, it's much easier to defend facts than it is for me to be like, that's just my experience with God. It's much more personally hurtful. And so, not being able to be personally vulnerable. Yeah. Um, one thing for me is just, um, in conversation, um, pretending that I know something when I don't. Uh, when someone yeah. references something, I'm like, oh yeah, I probably know it. I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 and then they continue conversation. Part of it is just, sometimes I'm just, I, I don't want to take the time to stop the conversation and then explain it. I'm just like, okay, just keep going. But, um, but most of the time, I don't want to seem like I don't know something. And so I'm just like, oh, sure. I mean, I might know it. I probably know it. And then move on. We don't like to look stupid in any way. In any way. And whatever mechanism that we have to prevent looking stupid is a good one if we think it's effective. It's not, it's harmful and toxic, but certainly makes us feel better in the meantime until we have no one to be intimate with, of course. Now I just, now I have no excuse. I'm just, I'm just, as a guy who has a, has a humor addiction. <laughs> yeah. Verse 20. This is still the woman talking. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So, perhaps she feels conviction when Jesus says, boom, you're a sinner, basically. Perhaps she feels conviction and feels, great, I need to get my life in order. Or, maybe on the other hand, she's like, finally, found a prophet. He's going to be able to, you know, answer, riddle me this question. Whatever the case, she suddenly feels a need to worship God. Um, this, the, the place of worship has been a traditional point of contention between the two groups. One say, you know, let's do it on this mountain. The other say, do it on this mountain. But um, how do I say it? This is, this is um, if, I, if I were to use the word archetypal, does that make any sense? Um, she is um, a, a type of person. Um, she's, an, she's a perfect illustration. 
uh, for what is a common reaction. So when a sinner is confronted with their sin, the most often response is some sort of external conformity to something, whether that is, I don't cuss, I don't do this, I don't do this, or I go to church, that's how I'm going to fix my sinnerness. And that's what, that's what you see here. Confronted with sin, and she's like, okay, cool, so what external formality do I need to hit to get rid of this problem? She wants to get her externals down so that she can feel okay. And how do we see that in our world today? You can, somebody's confronted with their sin, and then what do they want to add in? To make, like, what on top do they want to add in to make themselves feel better? I got it from my parents. That's an interesting one. I hate that one. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe a better question is why why do we rely on external formalities to make us feel better? What do you mean by validation? Well, I mean, like, there, there's certain things that you don't want to confront about your life, and that, like, is pretty much like your scapegoat to be like, hey, I don't need to address this right now. So. It's kind of like you with facts. It's less personal. I was basically saying the same thing. Verse 21. Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me. Girl, girl, believe me. That's in the message. I'm checking. The hour comes when you shall neither in this mountain nor at Jerusalem worship the Father. It's not about external formality. God doesn't care about it. That's basically his response. He's like, the hour's coming and now is that this mountain, that mountain. America. Oh, wait, that's not in there. Um, you can worship from anywhere. Honey, that's just a big rock. <laughs> it doesn't make any difference. It's just a formality. Verse 22. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. Our salvation is from the Jews. It's not about adding more stuff in. It's about a complete life transplant. And... They were, they were right. Jesus is right on two, on two accounts here. They, they didn't know the whole of Scripture. They didn't have the whole Old Testament. They rejected most of it if on the Samaritan case. But also in another sense, Jesus being the salvation was from the Jews. So it is true that salvation comes from the Jews. But Jesus is stepping back from this debate here. And he's, he's like, this is rather trivial in light of what the Father actually wants. Here's what God wants in worship, verse 23 and 24. And this really um, goes back to our third question tonight. What is worship? Verse 23 and 24. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the <coughs> worshipers will worship the Father and the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that, that the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. You know what kind of worship God wants? He wants something that combines both your heart and your head. And that is something that rarely happens. It's usually one or the other. You have a lot of baseless people 
who are exuberant. They're very passionate about what they're doing. Almost like, um, I use this a little bit out of context, but where Paul says the Jews were zealous, but not according to knowledge. They were really passionate, but they had no idea what they were talking about. And we, you know people like that. They're, they're all about it, but when it comes to facts and meaning and explanations and arguments and underpinnings, they're all like, nah, that's, that's a lot of words. Then you also know, and perhaps even the more dangerous category in my opinion, you know people who know all of the stuff and they are stone cold. And I, I of all people, and probably, this is what I'm dealing with right now in my personal life is learning how to combine the two. I feel that most often in evangelical culture, the head aspect of what God calls for, he calls for spirit, kind of the heart, the spirit of a person, but he also calls for truth, which would be more of the intellect. I feel that the intellect aspect of worship is often shunned because we want we, all, we, we literally define worship exclusively to music most often, which is more about the emotional, spiritual, like, ah. But the preaching, the teaching, that should be just as much a component of worship as singing a bunch of songs. Thinking can very much be worship as long as it doesn't just stay up here. And learning to combine those two is something that I'm still struggling with. I don't know how to combine the two quite appropriately yet. Um, you can have zealous, zealous heterodoxy and you can have dead orthodoxy, but combining those two into something that is truthful, orthodox, meaningful teaching on the right path, yet passionate about it, is a very challenging thing. And that's, that's what I wanted to focus on. This is, to me, the one of the highlights of the passage is that it's not about just being built up in knowledge, it's about having love and intimacy with him. The best analogy that I can use, and it makes a lot of sense um, in the human realm, in one sense, if I were, uh, how do I say, if I didn't really have much of a heart for loving Joe, didn't really care about her, but I intensely studied about her and knew all the facts about her, <laughs> you guys would... <laughs> yes, yeah, so she loves Chick-fil-A. That, that you guys would think that's terrible, that I, I didn't really care about her, but man, did I execute. Stop. Yeah. I, uh, Some might say they care too much. <laughs> but I knew all the facts. You guys would think that's terrible. But if, on the other hand, I was like super passionate about Joe, spending time with her, enjoyed that, but when, it, when somebody was like, you know, want to know her birthday, her middle name... <laughs> um, yeah, um, th those would also be negative things and they would really detract from the relationship. It's got to be a combination of the two. I'm not 100% sure how to achieve that, but that's what Jesus is calling for here in this gospel presentation. And this is one of the things that is so important to get across in our gospel presentations is that it's not about just accepting uh, precepts and principles and um, propositions, but rather it is about a completely renewed heart towards God in that area. It's not just about, oh yeah, yeah, I believe that. You have to have a new overwhelming appreciation. The, the water springing up to eternal life 
has to overwhelm your heart. But that can't be apart from the intellect either. And we've heard it in James now, dead faith, you hear about facts and you hear about works and the heart and all that combining. And you hear it throughout Jesus' teaching and we're gonna hear it back again, something similar in 1 John. So they all say it differently, but they're all saying the same thing. You have to have the facts right, but you also really can't just have the facts right. You have to have a deep love and passion for God, submitting to his lordship and to his way and to his word. Finally, this is actually the climax of the passage in context, verse 25. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. So she still doesn't quite get it. She's like, I, thank you. I know that when Messiah comes, he's just going to explain it all, but thank you, I appreciate it. <laughs> and so... Jesus kicks back with this bombshell, verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus just drops the Messiah bomb, just like <laughs> right there. And what's interesting is compare the response between her and Nicodemus. Jesus basically did the same thing in a roundabout way with Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus didn't get it. Jesus tried again with a different thing, got more direct, and said the Son of Man must be lifted up, yada, yada. Confronted him about sin, said that people don't like to come to the light because people love darkness. Same presentation, different words, and yet 100% different result. Because when she heard that, it made sense, and her unbelief did not produce ignorance. She believed which produced knowledge, intellectual, but it was obvious that it was more than that. She was passionate about it from that very moment forward. Very much different and very much the same. That's why I've included this lesson. I, I know it's abbreviated and I know we just rushed through it, but Jesus is still presenting a confrontation with sin. He's still going out of his way to love people. He's still showing that God is gracious and willing to impart this gift. He's doing it differently, and he's still claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God, and God himself. Same thing, different type. What we're going to do now, and the reason that we have um, quit just a bit early, is... Um, how do I say this? One might, one might suggest that we have been in this series for a little bit longer than was initially intended. I'm sorry. I can't help myself sometimes. There's so many rabbit trails um, that are so important. But we've been here for a long time, and some of the people in this group have not been here as long as the series has been going on, actually. <laughs> and so... What we're gonna to do tonight is we're going to split up into groups, mixed gender, um, and I know, I know it. That, that's what makes us not Baptist, by the way, is that we're willing to do that. Um, that's what I, sorry, that, yeah, anyways. That is such an important thing to get both perspectives, but anywho, that's a, that is literally a rabbit trail for another time. What we're going to do is, I've printed out outlines of where we've um, gotten through so far in the series. 
we are going to be um, splitting up into groups. I, I included this outline because it's so easy to forget where we've been, what we've been talking about. I don't even remember where we've been and what we've been talking about half the time. Uh, I have to look back at the podcast. Anyways, um, so I want you guys to go through this and discuss and reteach the content to each other to reinforce what we've been learning. If, if you're new here, this is a great opportunity to be caught up on where we've been. Furthermore, if you've been here forever, this is a great opportunity to get the perspectives and insights of the spirit through other people. Um, I say things in my way, and I know that doesn't click for a lot of people. I know I say things in ways that are confusing for some people, but perhaps another perspective, another brain, another set of words will help cement the idea in a more appropriate way. So this should be a primer. Uh, talk about what you agreed with, what you appreciated, what you disagreed with, what you just, you know, all the names that you may have for me. Uh, just say them in the rooms uh, without me hearing them. So 